The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us to learn more about the outlook for healthcare stocks. It's my pleasure to speak today with Josh Nathan Cases, Barron's healthcare reporter, about the latest in COVID treatments, biotech stocks, and more. Please use the chat section of the website to send us your questions, and we'll answer as many as we can toward the end of the call. Josh, welcome back to Barron's Live. I am so looking forward to catching up with you today. Great to be here. Glad to talk to you. All right, let's start with COVID as we usually do. It seems to be everywhere again. What are you seeing and hearing? What's the latest variant and why can't we get rid of this? Well, a lot of big and good questions. I I think now it seems as though the U.S. is in the beginning or the midst of what we might consider the BA5 wave. BA5 is uh, yet another subvariant of Omicron. Uh, It spreads slowly across the world, quickly across the world, I should say. Um, the CDC makes estimates every week as to the proportion of cases in the U.S. caused by a given variant. Um, the, the update yesterday put BA5 at about um, 54% of cases, up from 40% last week. And together, BA5 and a similar variant called BA4 make up 70% of cases. This is for for the week ending uh, today is is what this estimate is for. Um, By contrast, the two together made up 16% of cases in the week ending June 4th, a month ago. So you can get a sense that it is um, really overtaken the other uh, Omicron subvariants very quickly and and is very rapidly pushing them out. And that's not great news for a number of reasons. It seems to be more transmissible um, than earlier variants. And it also has some mutations that suggest it can escape prior immunity. Now that said, nationwide right now, cases are relatively flat, but as we've discussed, every time we've discussed this in the past many months, it's, it's really hard to know what those case counts mean anymore in this era of um, you know, at-home rapid testing when one might estimate that the vast majority of cases that are that they'd get a rapid at home, a positive on a, on a rapid at home test would, wouldn't be counted. Um, so mo- there's 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 a lot of cases out there that aren't included in these numbers. There's another figure that people track, which is um, the positivity rate of PCR tests in the country, um, and that's been climbing very sharply. It's about 17 percent according to the Times tracker. Uh, it was 12 percent June 1st, and you know just in terms of uh, of, of a of a way to something to measure that against at the, at the January peak, the, that was the, the original Omicron peak. It was at around 30%. So, you know, it's short of that, but it's on its way up. Hospitalizations are climbing a bit, although in, in absolute terms, hospitalizations are pretty low um, in the U S right now. It's averaging about 34,000 compared to um, uh, nearly 160,000 in, in January. Um, so look, I mean, as, as we say, the rise of this, new variant is not good. It seems to be very transmissible. 
I think low hospitalizations right now can be taken as a good sign. And um, we'll really see what happens over the next couple of weeks. You know, we're heading into a period when a lot of people are outside, um, not traditionally a time, you know, the peak of summer is not traditionally a time when respiratory viruses spread very quickly, although obviously there have been COVID waves um, over the summer. It's wedding season, Josh. <laughs> that seems to be a big spreader. <laughs> so I, I know we keep adding Binax tests to the weekly grocery list. Yeah. You go to weddings, you go to wedding-related events, and you want to test before you go. I, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing to say that's of interest to me and many, many readers who may be located in New York City, like I am. Uh, cases are up here 28% over the last two weeks. Um, so, uh, you know, New York is, 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 seems to be increasing again after a couple of weeks of, of lull. I also want to mention that, you know, people might start hearing about this new, a new subvariant, yet another one. Sorry, can you still hear me? I can. Oh, yes. good. Okay. Sorry. Uh, a new subvariant. Um, th this one's BA2.75. It's emerging in India. There's a lot of very, very preliminary data on this, but the WHO has said they're monitoring, monitoring it. It's in about 10, 10 countries. It seems to have some concerning mutations, but the, the data that exists is very preliminary. Um, but certainly this, this variant in India, BA.2.75, is one that seems to be on the radar of the public health officials who track this stuff. Interesting. I hope it does not come here. So as we head toward the fall, we're going to be hearing a lot about COVID booster shots. And they're already in the works, but like everything COVID-related, it seems, there's controversy. So what are the issues? What's at stake? And when can we expect to get our COVID boosters? Yeah, this is this is the big news last week, and there seems to be a lot of confusion left about it. Um, so what happened is the FDA asked or recommended that the vaccine makers make boosters for the fall that target BA4 and BA5. Um, now, we've been talking for a long time about updating the COVID-19 vaccines for Moderna and Pfizer. I mean, the whole, people may remember that the whole initial pitch for the mRNA-based vaccines was that they can be adapted very quickly as the virus changes, or at least part of the initial pitch. Um, and that hasn't happened so far. Um, you know, the, the, the booster that you got last week or that your kid got two weeks ago um, is the same booster that was created in, um, you know, uh, that, that was really based on a, on one of the very first sequences of the virus that was collected and published in January of 2020. And that, that strain, um, is no longer existing. Now, you know, as, as, as we know, the virus, the vaccine still works and it still offers protection. The idea is that if you update these vaccines, they will offer better protection against the variants that are currently circulating. Now, you know, Moderna and Pfizer had both been testing bivalent vaccines that combined the original version of the vaccine with a BA1 specific vaccine. That's the original Omicron. And those went through human tests. Um, Pfizer and Moderna presented those to the FDA's vaccine advisors early last week. And the vaccine advisors ended up saying, actually, we don't want you to roll those vaccines out that you've made and tested. We want you to roll out BA4 or 5 specific vaccines. Now, you know, we, we had, I mean, I'd had a conversation with Moderna CEO in May in which he said, we can only do the BA1 specific 5 a.m. vaccine for the fall. We can't do anything more updated because of the amount of time it takes to make these. Um, 
And now Moderna says they, they can do it, but Moderna would have been ready to roll out a BA1 specific vaccine in you know July or August. Um, now they're Doesn't saying- Moderna have to keep pace with Pfizer in a sense? Yeah, well, yes, yes. And, and you know, Pfizer does seem to be a little bit ahead of them. It's very hard to say, uh, but, but Pfizer sort of sprung some data at the FDA advisory committee meeting. They, they showed that they had mouse data on a BA4 or 5 specific vaccine. Um, which Moderna did not have. And in fact, Pfizer, they said they had first shown it to the FDA the morning of the meeting and it wasn't in the previously circulated briefing document. So that was very late breaking. What, what, what's, what we've settled on here, what the FDA has settled on is that they, they want BA4 or 5 specific vaccines for the fall. And th- those will be, um, Pfizer says they can have theirs in early October. Moderna said late October, early November. Um, but uh they're not asking the FDA is not asking that the that the companies test these vaccines in humans. They're they're asking that they use the data on the BA one specific bivalent vaccine as part of the application. Start is, this, is that unusual? It seems. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, we, we've never really gone through this. There's a number of things to say. Number one, this is the first updated mRNA based vaccine in history, right? Uh, mRNA the, the mRNA based vaccines were. Um, to be approved or authorized were the first generation COVID-19 vaccines. And now we're updating those, you know, obviously flu vaccines are updated every year. So that happens. It's a different technology, but we don't test the flu vaccines in people every time we update them. Um, They will test them in, in, in animals. And they're also going to start human trials of the BA4 or 5 specific vaccines. They just don't need to be finished before they get authorized. And if they did need to be finished before they got authorized, there wouldn't be BA4 or 5 vaccines this fall. I mean, it takes longer to run these tests. Um, it's a fascinating situation. On the one hand, it, it does seem like an, a reaffirmation of the case for the mRNA-based vaccines, at least in the mid to near term. Um, you know, we, we are now taking advantage of this, this you know, notional benefit that they can be updated very quickly. And it seems to suggest that there will be an, an ongoing market for um, updated mRNA-based vaccines uh, at least for a while, or at least until a better option is available. On the other hand, you know, it's hard to ignore the fact that what I just said three minutes ago, which is that um, BA5 is here now <laughs> and, right. it's, and it's July. And so we don't know what the most um, um, currently- They're going to be behind the curve by October. It's possible. I mean, you know, you got to make a guess. And, you know, as we know from the flu vaccines, which, I, you know, you can't really make this comparison, and I'm sure- you know, scientists are, you know, pulling their hair out listening to me right now. But you know, the the flu vaccines often miss the mark uh, when they have, when they try to target them to the specific flu variant that's circulating. Um, so this is this is all very hard. Um, but uh, it's a fascinating situation, and you know, um, it's all it's all very new. Um, but the 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 the, up, the upshot here is that, assuming you know the, the human trials go well, the companies can make this in time. There should be BA4 or 5 specific bivalent vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, you know, October, November. Um, and the FDA, um, the FDA staff seemed to very clearly expect a, a significant wave of COVID around then, both due to just, you know, the ongoing mutation, um, rate of mutation of the, of the virus and also waning immunity from the, across the population from the boosters that we've already got. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on this, and I'm sure I'll be circling back to you about it in subsequent calls. 
but thanks for that comprehensive update. So inflation, Josh, we talk about it a lot in our economic team meetings, but now it's hit the COVID market. I understand Pfizer is raising the price of its vaccine. So I'm curious, how much will it charge? Who is going to be paying more? Where's the money going to come from? And of course, why is it doing this? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's inflation driving the price increase, but, okay. <laughs> but, but, but worth noting. So, um, you know, the, it, the, the, the news here is that last week Pfizer announced a $3.2 billion deal with the U S government for the U S government to buy 105 million doses of its COVID vaccines to be delivered this year. And that this includes all the doses of COVID vaccines now, including the doses for young children and it also potentially um, includes the bivalent vaccines that we were talking about a moment ago. So if you if you do the math, that's about $30.48 per dose. Now, last July, the U.S. reportedly paid $24 per dose. And in July 2020, the U.S. paid $19.50 per dose. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that Pfizer would likely say, and I'm sort of guessing here, but, uh, you know, as the technology gets proved out, as the value gets proved out, as more data accumulates, it's, it's worth more. Um, you know, we're also getting out of the pandemic environment a little bit. Um, you know, there, there had been some speculation that the COVID-19 vaccines would be pushed onto the private market in the fall because Congress has not allocated more money to buy COVID vaccines. Um, in fact, what ended up happening was that the White House was able to pull $10 billion of existing funding to pay for this um, and other things, they haven't said what, but presumably um, some COVID therapeutics, potentially, they, they also would need to buy Moderna vaccine. They haven't announced a deal with Moderna yet. Um, so that is notionally what that money would be for. Um, but, it, you know, it, I think it, first of all, just in the, in the near term, Pfizer doesn't estimate, um, doesn't, in their sales guidance for the year, they only include contracted um, COVID sales, for, for sales for their COVID vaccine. So this will... Um, basically automatically raise Pfizer's 2022 sales guidance by $3 billion. But I think it also implies a longer term tail for the COVID vaccine, you know, in conjunction with the conversation we were just happening, having with the, with the updated Pfizer um, bivalent vaccines. Interesting. Interesting situation for sure. I want to talk briefly about monkeypox, which is another virus we've been watching. Fortunately, a vaccine already exists. And now there's a campaign to inoculate people who might have been exposed. How is that going? Yes, yeah, so, you know, this monkeypox thing is clearly an issue. Um, the U.S. said last week that it's going to distribute 56,000 doses of this monkeypox vaccine called uh, Geneos. It's made by a company called Bavarian Nordic. It's, it, it reflects a shift in the U.S. approach to monkeypox, and it basically is allowing a much broader category of people to be vaccinated, including those with presumed exposure, which which is a, which is much broader than than had been getting these doses before. In fact, before this announcement, only nine thousand doses had been um, uh, distributed across the U.S. Um, now, the U.S. government owns these doses; this is not happening on the private markets. Um, one complication is that the company that makes this stuff, Bavarian Nordic. Um, their manufacturing plant is shut down. They can't make new doses. Um, I believe the plant. What happened? Were, they were remodeling it <laughs> before this. Oh happened. no! Bad um, timing. Yeah, they're gonna. I think they've said they're gonna reopen in August, but it takes about six months to push things out the door. And that said, there's a lot of um, bulk vaccine product that is stored and frozen that can be 
turned into doses. So there, there is plenty. It's not an immediate crush. It's just it's more of an issue for companies looking to buy um, new uh, bulk vaccine product. Um, the U.S. says that they're getting 300,000 more doses in the coming weeks. That's above the 56,000. And then, uh, you know, 750,000 more in the summer, 500,000 more in the fall. Um, it, it sounds like the U.S. did buy some more uh, bulk product um, earlier this month. The U.S. now owns about 2 million doses of, of Janaeus. It, it, it does need to be turned into doses from the bulk vaccine material. The point is, you know, there's a couple of points here. You know, one is that it's um, shows the value, I think, of, uh, you know, preparation. I mean, nobody uh, predicted that there would be a monkeypox outbreak um, in the U.S. And, and elsewhere this year. But the U.S. was prepared for it and had funded development of this vaccine and had funded this stockpile that is now able to roll out. Um, you know, that's good. The other piece of this, there's been a lot of criticism of the lack of testing for monkeypox. And I think a suspicion among public health officials that if you expanded testing and improved testing, you might find that, um, you know, this virus is already more widespread. Yeah. Yeah. So in fact, um, LabCorp, um, the big testing company said Wednesday that they are going to begin offering monkeypox testing. They can do 10,000 tests per week, which alone doubles the U S testing capacity. And the, the U.S. says that there are more commercial labs that, that are being prepared to, to do these tests. So that's that's pretty good news to sort of get a get a hold of what's going on here. Seems like we've learned some lessons from COVID in terms One of would hope. this. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I want to leave the world of viruses and head toward the world of neurodegenerative diseases. <laughs> I, I don't know if we're going from the frying pan to the fire here. A company named ESAI, the ticker is E-S-A-L-Y, has submitted an application to regulators for accelerated approval of a drug to treat Alzheimer's. It's called Lacanumab. I feel like we've seen this movie before. The first version starred Biogen. Why are people buzzing about ESAI and what does all this mean for the company's stock? Yeah, and just to clarify, the, the, what happened... They, they did submit the application for acceler- accelerator approval. What happened on Tuesday is that the FDA agreed to consider the application, which ah, is a small okay. point, but 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 sort of relevant. The other thing is, you know, um, people may recall that ISI and Biogen were partnered on Agihelm, which is the 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 other Alzheimer's drug. I do not remember. And and ISI and Biogen are actually also partnered on this drug. It's um, the, the the terms of their deal are such that Biogen led the Agihelm operation and. Um, ISI is leading the lecanemab operation. All that aside, you know, this is maybe just to take a step back. Um, people who who follow this will recall that accelerated approval allows for, in this instance, would allow for approval of the drug based on its ability to clear brain plaques rather than a proven clinical benefit for patients. Now, um, lecanemab, there is a phase three trial of lecanemab that um, is due to produce data later this year in the fall that will show whether it has a clinical benefit for patients. But ISI, because of Agihelm's ability to get that accelerated approval, wants to get accelerated approval for lecanemab. This gets very complicated. It might be worth people interested in this reading the piece that I wrote about it the other day, um, which refers back to a lot of reporting we've done on this. Um, But you know, the, the the reason that Biogen's Agihelm eventually failed from a commercial perspective um, is is that 
the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which oversees the, the, the Medicare program, said that it effectively wouldn't reimburse, wouldn't pay for the drug. Um, and what, what's notable is that if Lecanemab gets accelerated approval, it will not get reimbursed under the same decision, um, which means that the commercial outlook is very, very limited for this drug unless it gets full approval. So what, what, what ISI says is that their plan, assuming the phase three data that comes in the fall is positive, is to submit for full approval using that phase three data early next year. The FDA will um, uh, has, has uh, yeah, by, by which point notionally the FDA would have decided on the accelerated approval question. And, and so um, they would use that, that window, that period in between when they would have accelerated approval and not full approval to begin to roll out the drug and, and get, get um, uh, you know, doctors and clinics comfortable with it. But, you know, I think this, this, I mean, people will remember that the approval of Agihelm was extraordinarily controversial. You know, not only did it not end up getting covered, but, but the approval decision led a number of experts on the FDA's advisory committee who had voted against, effectively voted against approving the drug to resign. Um, and it led to a, you know, a lot of scrutiny, including a lot of criticism of the accelerated approval program and of the FDA itself. So, you know, I think that we are, we are going to see, uh, you know, a replay, a potential replay of that, that, that hearing and that debate. And, you know, I think it's important to remind people that Lecanemab and, and Agilehelm are very similar in, in the way that they work, although they have different. I was going to ask you that. What's the and difference it, between the two drugs and why, why go through all this after the uh, miserable experience of the first one? Well, they, 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 you know, they, they both try to clear um, brain plaques in order to, um, to, to treat the symptoms of the disease and, and the underlying illness. Um, there's a difference in, in the safety profile. Lecanemab is thought to have, um, or in earlier studies has, had shown uh, fewer safety risks. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there are a number of these drugs. Um, Eli Lilly has one called Denanemab. Uh, Roche has one called, uh, again, Trenemab. Um, and they all have slightly different profiles. The, the companies are running different trials. You know, the idea is to find one that, or multiple ones that can convincingly show benefit. And, and you know, then if they really could get fully reimbursed by CMS, it would be, you know, a mega, mega blockbuster drug because, you know, I, I don't think it needs to be said, but Alzheimer's is, you know, just an enormous problem in this country and around the world. Right. Huge unmet need there. So wow. this will be one to watch. It's it's good that more drugs are coming out in this area, and hopefully this one will meet a better fate than Adrihel. Yeah, I should say there's, there's a lot of skepticism among. Uh, I, uh, I'm sensing that uh, around this whole class say. of drugs, just because there there have been so many failures and disappointments. Um, people are, um, you know, not ready to believe that. Um, I mean, there's just there's just the the whole theory on which these drugs are based is certainly controversial. What do you think is the most radical approach to treating Alzheimer's from a pharmaceutical perspective that you've researched? And there's a lot of interesting ideas out there about um, you know, viruses causing Alzheimer's, um, different approaches to plaques and, and tau's, and all these things. Um, I think you know these these four or five um, uh, drugs that target amyloid beta are. Are empty the, the amyloid beta, beta plaques are the ones that have gone the farthest, um, but I, I, you know, there, there's other stuff out there. I think the problem is just that all of these uh, 
neurological disorders is, is just very, very challenging science. So we'll keep covering that most certainly. All right, last topic, then we'll go to some listener questions. At Barron's, we've been writing a lot about the crypto winter, but we should have been writing about the biotech winter as well because biotech stocks were in a, a really bad funk in the first half of the year. And you did cover that. We just didn't call it biotech winter. Suddenly, the stocks seem to be showing some signs of life again. So I can't help but ask, is the bear market over? Yeah, well, look, I mean, here's 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 what's happened. I mean, in the first half of the year, the... We, there, there's a there's a, a biotech ETF we talk about a lot, the SPDR, S&P Biotech ETF. It dropped 33% in the first half of the year. You know, that's compared to the S&P 500, which dropped 20%. Um, but June, June, it looked a little better. It was up 8% in June. And in fact, in the last two weeks of June, uh, between from uh, June 15th to the end of the month, it was up 17% while the S&P was basically flat. And this month, in the first week of July, it's up 9%. But I, I think that if you if you talk to folks, it, it's far, far too early to call the end of the biotech bear market. I mean, a lot of this, I think, is on um, enthusiasm around the possible Merck acquisition of, of a company called CGen. Um, there's there's a number of other you know items. I think what's different here is that whereas there had been you know um, positive news about biotech stocks you know earlier in the year. Investors just weren't willing to run with it. And in these cases, in the past month or so, three weeks or so, something seems to have changed. And um, and, and and there there is a bit more willingness, I think, to, you know, take a good sign and from one of these companies and, and, and buy up the sector. I think the question now is the same question for any sector, you know, whether the macro concerns over inflation, interest rates, et cetera, will continue to to bring the pressure or, or if there's room for um, biotech to come back. And I, I think it's probably a little early to say, but um, I think it's probably too early to call the end of the uh, <laughs> of the biotech winter. Okay. And you did mention some of those macro factors, and that seems to be behind some of the rally in the stocks because the market itself has stabilized. The NASDAQ has stopped falling quite as precipitously. And investors seem a little bit more forgiving of growth stocks with a long-term earnings outlook as yeah. opposed to immediate earnings. So I think there's a macro explanation for some of the rally. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So let's go to some listener questions. We had a couple of people asking today about your recommendations for healthcare stocks and funds. So why don't we take a look at ETFs? What um what would be a way to play the sector using ETFs? That's exchange traded funds. Yeah, you know, one that comes up a lot is the XLV, the I think it's the healthcare select sector spider. spider. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and this one is pretty focused on the the biggest uh healthcare companies. Johnson and Johnson is their largest holding United Healthcare. Pfizer, AbbVie, Lilly. And, you know, I think people are still looking for that sort of defensive healthcare play, you know, looking for defense in the, in the largest healthcare stocks. That, that, seem, that seems to me like a logical place to go. And if you wanted to focus on the biotech stocks as opposed to the big pharma stocks, where would you go there? Well, that's tricky. I mean, you know, we just talked about the XBI. I think there's a lot of uh, people who track the sector less certain about whether the XBI still is reflective of the sector. There's also the IBB, which is um, focused on the larger biotech stocks. Um, but th those are the, the, the big names uh, 
Those are the ticker symbols we should point out. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So John asks whether you can comment on gene therapy and the best companies in that area. Yeah, I got to refer him to Bill Appert, our colleague, who really covers this very closely. He had an interesting story yesterday about Sarepta. Um, I would I would just take a, a close look at his reporting over the last, gosh, he's been doing this for years. But um, yes. But there's been a lot of good stuff in the past few weeks as well. Well, we'll bring Bill on one of these days to do a segment on gene therapy. Yeah, that'd be great. So Sharon asks, how will the new technology used to create Moderna and Pfizer's COVID vaccines, we're talking about mRNA, be used in other drug research? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I mean, if, if, if she's asking about the sort of implications of, you know, mRNA technology and, and mRNA, mRNA vaccines and therapeutics, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of focus there. I mean, you know, Moderna has a tremendous pipeline. Um, as is BioNTech, uh, which is Pfizer's partner, um, and a number of other companies are coming into the space, including Sanofi. I mean, it goes beyond um, vaccines. You know, there's a lot of work in cancer. Um, and there's also an idea, which we wrote about in an August of 2019 cover story about Moderna and um, a company called Translate Bio, which is subsequently bought by Sanofi. Um, talking really about the therapeutic applications for treating diseases like cystic fibrosis. Um, that particular cystic fibrosis trial we wrote about uh, that Translate Bio was doing didn't turn out so well, but um, but the idea is still being pursued by these companies in other other disease areas. And then Sharon asks, additionally, if mRNA really takes off in different disease areas, are other parts of drug research threatened? In other words, will it threaten other technologies? Um, I, I, I don't, you mean a lot, there's, there's, there's so much out there and so many different, you know, it's, everyone always wants to find the sort of one killer biotechnology platform that, you know, makes all other drugs and drug development approaches irrelevant. I, I don't think that, um, anyone will ever, I mean, there, there's different uses for different kinds of approaches. And I can't imagine that, I, I don't think that Moderna is, I'm sorry, that mRNA is pushing out every other approach to uh, drug development. Okay. It's an interesting question. And for sure. Your answer. Steve has asked if you don't think the, bi or if you think the biotech winter is a do over, do you think it makes sense to buy inverse ETFs to bet on more downside? I, I will say that the leveraged ones can be very dangerous if you're wrong. Yeah. I'm, I'm loath to make a, <laughs> right. a suggestion here. Um, but uh, um, interesting question. It is an interesting question. Uh, I don't think it's our expertise. So, Josh, I just want to wrap up quickly and talk about a big feature you had in Barron's uh, since our last uh, get together on Barron's Live. You took a deep dive into the pharma sector and talked about how traditional pharma companies are spinning off their consumer products divisions and really betting the farm, or at least a good portion of the farm, on biotech and their drug pipelines. So, can you just summarize the story for listeners? I thought it was a great read. It raises a lot of interesting questions about the stocks, about the companies, and about the future of, of basically pharma research. So perhaps you can summarize it. Sure. Yeah. And, and this was a feature that ran in the magazine, I guess, two or three weeks ago. Um, and the, the the idea was essentially that you know, big pharma had you know for for many decades was were was building these big conglomerates that that pulled together all sorts of businesses from, you know, uh, consumer health to, you know, 
contact lenses and veterinary medicine. And there's been a tremendous trend of getting rid of this stuff. Um, you know, the, the big example that we start with is GlaxoSmithKline, which as we've discussed here um, this month, in fact, and just a week or so is spitting off a very, very large consumer health division to become, uh, you know, quote unquote, pure play biopharma. And Pfizer's done this. Um, you know, Bristol Myers did this a number of years ago. Lilly looks like this now. Um, in fact, the, the majority of the big pharma companies in the world, or at least, uh, you know, in, in the US and Europe, um, have now gotten rid of everything else and focus on this model. And what we write about is that this effectively, they now look like, you know, very, very large biotechs, both in terms of their structure, but also in terms of um, the kind of diseases they're focusing on. You know, it's, it's, it's more complicated medicines, more cutting edge medicines, more expensive medicines. Um, and, and we looked at the implications that has for investors. Uh, I think it makes these potentially riskier stocks um, with more upside, but also, you know, more exposure to the ups and downs of pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, bleh, pharmaceutical. I know what you're saying. A lot and, more volatility. And at the, and at the same time, implications for the kind of drugs that get made, um, you know, uh, a, a shift towards uh, oncology and rare disease and um, areas where companies have been able to get really high prices uh, along with seeing other benefits, I think there's there's a risk and a question that will they um, not focus on some of the sort of largest killers that you know the, disease, the, the diseases that remain the largest threats around the world and, and in the U.S. Um, so you know we went into this in great or I went I went into this in much greater depth in the story and um, hope people seek it out. I think it's a very important topic if you're going to be an investor in the industry. Thank you so much for your comments today. Thanks to our listeners for your great questions. And we'll leave it there. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the subject is real estate. After the exodus from urban living at the start of COVID-19, cities are seeing workers return. I'm in the office today. And residential prices are on the rise Kate Everett Allen, a partner in charge of residential research at Knight Frank, and Jonathan Miller, president and CEO of real estate appraiser Miller Samuel, will be talking with Mansion Global's Leslie Hendrickson on the state of luxury real estate in global cities. That's it for today, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.